Blog Talk Radio. Radio station on the land, you hear me? Oh, well, what that is? Hilltop, hilltop. Show DJ Sean and the realist, the functional family of radio 
right here on Hilltop Radio. What's up, Mr. Mr. Electrifying Uncle Green, Uncle Al Green Davis? Welcome to the show. <laughs> what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? And everything. Right. DJ Big Hood. He had to add an extra G to it. Big. That's how he is. Big Hood. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, what's going on, fam? How everybody doing? All right. Oh, you ain't got the Barry White boys kicking in tonight. All right. <laughs> Boy, you crazy. Got their little baby feet. EP, welcome to the show. <laughs> All right. This is Double Chocolate. Welcome to the show. What's happening, family? Oh, no. You getting ready to go on mute. All that noise. Wherever you at. <laughs> Angela, are you Angela? Are you on? Uh, you got a lot of noise. Welcome to the show, cause we're gonna have to mute. Uh, Raz, you gonna be with EP again tonight, all night. <laughs> so double yeah, chocolate thing. Double chocolate thing. She just clicked. She went to her headset. <laughs> Say what now? Say it again. Say it with your chest. Say it with your goddamn chest. I'm in the building. <laughs> she went to her headset so she can hear. She don't want going no mute. Mm-mm. I had a AJ, client, so I had to get on uh, my phone. I'm sorry, AJ. AJ, you there? Well, she's going on mute. Well, EP, I guess it's just you and Raz tonight, brother. Mm, he uh, dumped me last night. You still my baby. Don't play like that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's get right. one of the guests. Let's get one of the guests <laughs> on over here. Hi, you've reached Ramon Hervey. I'm not available to accept your call right now, so please leave a message after speak. Oh, uh, right. I just texted him. I just texted him and, uh, and let him know I'm calling him. Let's get, this other, let's get the other guest on here. Then I'll call him back. Let's see. Uh, let everybody know awesome show last night. Um, good show last night. That's right. Love Wonderful show God. last night. No Ooh. rappers. Woo woo. Said the hell of you. No. Mr. Leroy Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you. How you doing? Doing good. I try to call. Ramon, but I'm getting ready to call him back now. Hold on a second there, sir. If anybody doesn't know, uh, Leroy, Mr. Leroy Johnson is uh, 
a painter, artist, manager, attorney, and the older brother of Rick James. You were doing so well. Oh, what I mess up the older the older part? Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm always messing up. I'm always messing up when you're on here. When you come you're, on here, you're always wrong. Uh, you're always four for nine, five for <laughs> ten. <laughs> and DJ Sean, you know you can't treat my brother like that. You can't do my brother no, like that, DJ Sean. Some, hey, hey, I hear Robin. We're gonna boost him up there, though. We got to get him up there. No, Robin on, <laughs> Robin on. Quiet. That's that's Big Brother Al right there, uh, backing you up. Hey, oh, Al. never mind. Never mind. What's on, my brother? What's he, happening? He called. Never mind, he called in. Here he is. Hello? Mr. Ramon. Harvey. Harvey. Harvey, Harvey how you doing, sir? I'm messing everybody's name out tonight. Yes, sir. Welcome no, no to the work. show. Oh, this four for nine so far. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honor Welcome and a pleasure. To the Ramon. Welcome ahead, to the uh, show. There you Thank go. You. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you on here tonight. And uh, shout-outs to my big brother, Leroy, for uh, reaching out to you and and bringing you on tonight and and talking about your book. So um, before we get into your book, uh, let everybody uh, know a little bit about you, you know, and your uh, road through the industry. Uh. Well, I've been in the industry for a little over four decades. I started off in uh, London, England. Um, I was a flight attendant for Pan Am Airlines, and I got laid off, and I started in the music industry over there. I worked for a company, a booking agency called Starlight Artists. Uh, they had a big, uh, one of the biggest pop stars at that time. This is in the mid-'70s called the Bay City Rollers. They were supposedly going to be the next Beatles. They didn't make it, but uh, they were pretty hot for a minute um and they had a group called clem curtis and the foundations a group called marmalade uh duo called mac and katie kassoon and i came back to the states um I, I lived in london for four years came back to the states got my first gig in the u.s at motown records um that's actually where i met um uh, leroy and, and rick james and um they were, you know, this was when Motown was at the height of their, of their brand, you know, uh, global brand. Uh, they had Diana Ross, uh, Jackson Five, Marvin Gaye, The Four Tops, The Temptations, Smokey Robinson, um, just a, Stevie Wonder, um, just an incredible roster of really gifted, talented artists and songwriters and producers and uh so i got i cut my teeth there and then i went from there to a company called rogers and cowan which is the first really the first independent uh public relations company in the entertainment business that represented stars because uh back in the day all the motion picture studios actually um they employed all the actors and they there were no managers, there were no agents, and there were no publicists. And so this company that I worked for was the first one where, you know, well-known, famous stars could actually hire their publicists. And around the same time, management companies started to uh, blossom, and so did talent agencies. So I worked with uh, the Bee Gees, Peter Frampton, Daryl Hall and John Oates, uh, George Benson, Natalie Cole. Uh, 
uh, I signed Richard Pryor there, um, Patrice Russian, um, uh, Al Jarreau. I worked with a bunch of artists over the course of my time there. And I started my own PR company, and uh, and then I started uh, a management company after that. Wow. Long, long, long archives. Um and then you say you Milton, that's where you met Leroy. Uh Leroy, let everybody know a little bit about you and then we're gonna get into uh uh the book and everything and ask you know and uh let you guys, you know, uh Mr. Harvey tell the history and you know, some some of the uh the introduction uh to your book, some of the titles um uh, jumped out at me and and that's what I want to get into some of the titles that jumped out to me that's relevant in today's industry a lot of them don't really understand uh a lot of the what I'm going to be throwing at you um and a couple of the other uh guests that we have on there as well we'll have questions for you as well so go ahead Mr. Johnson well, I'll just say briefly because this is all this is not about me this is about Ramel um I'm an attorney, of course, and um, uh, with uh, over 40 years in the entertainment business, I managed uh, Mary Jane Productions, which was um, managing and was the CEO, which was the company that uh, had Rick James, Mary Jane Girls, uh, Val Young, uh, and uh, Process and the Do-Rags. So, uh, during our era, we were one of the... Uh, <coughs> major companies. At one time, we were the largest uh, publishing company in the com- in the country, probably in the early 80s. Um, so I have a little background. And I, I, I met Ramon back in those early days with Motown. Um, and uh, I mean, that, that's, a, that's just a nutshell. All right. Well, again, thank Thank uh thank you, uh, Leroy, for all you do for uh believing in uh what we're doing over here in Hilltop and you know, and bringing such artists and uh educators on because Mr. Harvey is gonna be an educator tonight with us um about his book and uh Mr. Harvey, go ahead and get into your book. Tell us you know, tell Hervey, us tell Hervey. everybody Hervey. I'm bad with yeah, names. Not Hervey, Hervey. I'm just sorry. Hervey. Hervey, okay. okay. Hervey. Okay, he's three he's three for nine now. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing Herbie. good for a minute. Herbie. It's a common mistake, but it is Hervey. Yeah. Hervey, yeah. It's the same way, just two E's instead of with the A. That's it. All right, Hervey. All right, there we go. I yeah. apologize. There you go. Everybody That's knows I'll mess a name up in a minute. Uh, <laughs> we'll go, <laughs> go ahead, Mr. Hervey. No, you go ahead. You're gonna. You're you're the one that's asking the questions, right? Yes, sir. Um. In, in your introduction, I what what dropped what popped out to me first, uh, you know, going over your book, um, a path of self-destruction can be can sabotage fame. Can you uh, explain uh, explain to us that and, and how relevant it is in in the industry today? A lot of artists don't understand that, and, and if you can explain that. Well, I think there's a difference. Uh, one of the things that I do talk about the book and one of my inspirations for writing the book was to uh, establish a difference between fame and success. You know, fame's been around 
for 180,000 years uh, it started one of the it was uh, back in Mesotonia they had a ruler who was considered the first famous person on the planet um, and it started with the idea of entitlement and rulers used it as a way to distance themselves from the commoners and to have them look up to them they needed to have some kind of how do we how do we make people follow us? And so it was established there, and it's always been a, a form of entitlement. Uh, but it's also a, it's not a destination. It, it's like an, an accolade and award, award. And if you look up the meaning of fame versus success, um, there is a difference. Success is something that you earn. Um, and I try to explain that through the clients that I've represented over the year who did become famous, they all were, were successful first. So when you, when you reach a level of success where you earn fame and it comes down to maybe two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, to me, 15 minutes of fame, if you have a great team around you and, um, you manage it well, then you can be, uh, it can be sustained over a long period of time. If you only get 10 minutes, you maybe never get those really big offers. You're not in the top 10, but you can make some money. Um, so it's not anything that um, you can count on. Um, there's no way of knowing how much fame you can get, even if you are really successful. Um, and the other thing is there's no path, one path that anyone can take to become famous. Um, every client that I've worked with, all the famous people that I've worked with, they all had a different path, a different way, a different uh, mechanisms. They had def- different talents um, that helped to contribute to their success and ultimately to their fame. So when you, when you do reach fame, then you have to understand how to use it and how to make it work for you or how it can become uh, an albatross around your neck if you misuse it. Um, and you uh, abuse it, um, it can be self-destructive because it's like an adrenaline rush. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like if you have if you have drugs or whatever, and you start to feel, wow, I'm famous. I can do this. I can do that. I can put myself above other people. If you use it for the wrong in the wrong ways, then you could be headed down a path of self-destruction. And one of the things I explain is that not everybody is capable of dealing with fame. So just the idea, just like some people can't smoke weed, some people can't do, you know, have a glass of wine. It just affects everybody differently. And fame is one of it. It's an intoxication. It can be, um, like I said, in a German rush. And if you're not a grounded person and you don't have self-confidence and you can't separate the difference of having success and fame from what your life is when you don't have that, it can become very problematic. And there's all wow. kinds of ways that you can be, you can self-destruct just by, um, you can be in a situation where you disrespect people um, and they get tired of you or you're constantly making poor choices. And then the public ultimately decides who's famous and for how long. It's really not, so much of it is not in your control. But if, you know, again, if you, Fame to me is like the marriage of art and commerce. If you do really good projects in the, in, you know, entertainment, and they they 
they become commercially successful and you're able to monetize it, then you can stretch your fame. So it's that constant balance of between good art and art that the public, you know, responds to and they, they want to hear it and they want to be part of it. So that's really the the goal of, of how you achieve success in our business. I think it comes from your talents. It comes from creating great products that the public will endear. And then, if you know, if you abuse fame, then as we found in some cases, uh, you can be canceled. You know, good, uh, two really recent things that I've watched where very, very famous people and black artists have been canceled. They've had, you know, they're not, they didn't lose all their fame, but they're struggling to regain. And that's Will Smith and, and Dave Chappelle. I mean, these guys are at the top of their game. And each of them suffered some form of cancellation. You know, mm-hmm. neither one of their careers are over. And they're still going to retain a lot of their fame. But they've taken a hit. And you, the question is, how much of a hit? It's still, it's still hard to determine. But that's because they did things that the public really didn't appreciate and didn't like, and, and they have turned against them. Or ultimately the people who need the public to support them have turned against them. So if, if, if uh, for example, with Chappelle, he got a lot of dates canceled because uh, there was so much of a backlash to him that the, 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 uh, a lot of the venues just didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want the negative press. And uh, right. the same thing has happened with Will Smith in terms of companies that don't feel that uh, who had their allegiance to him before the big slap, but now they've backed away. You know, when Tiger Woods got in his, you know, you can see it happen time and time again where people make, these are self-destructive moves, getting back to your question, that nobody forced them to make. They made these decisions and now they're, they're facing the, the liabilities of what those decisions uh, have caused. Wow. Wow. Uh, I'll go to uh, Uncle Al. Al, uh, any questions you want to ask about the book? I know you got a copy of it. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good. Nice to meet you. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, yes, I, um, I'm just listening and learning from what you uh you know listening to you and learning and and about the um just as the uh how some people can you know but the fame can it can be a gain or it can be self-destructive and yes and also within that it could be uh with with the egos come within come within themselves that can be self-destructive too, especially if they um, if they be in a way where they're disrespecting other people and they're just selfish and only thinking about themselves, and then that shows, and that can that can hurt, you know, that can hurt them. No, that's very true. You know, when uh, I have some tenets of fame, and I say, you know, uh, uh, being famous doesn't entitle you to be an asshole and a famous asshole is the worst to be. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, what comes around goes around, you know, and that's not what you want to be known for. Um, but, you know, it's, it's different again with everyone. You know, one of the people that 
I think was self-destructive in many ways, and it's been chronicled. I'm not letting out any secrets about Richard Pryor. He had, you know, some demons, and he he was on a self-destructive path many times. But he miraculously was one of the few people who turned that around and make it and made it work for him. And I think it maybe I look back at it and retrospectively thinking that one of the reasons why it worked for him was because he was a comic and he could he could turn it into humor and he was vulnerable enough to share all of his uh, missteps and put it into a comedic form. And so I was very instrumental in uh, putting together, helping to put together the first Richard life in, uh, uh, in concert film, which became a trademark of his at that time. There weren't a lot, but that whole idea of having uh, comedic films, concert films was not popular and he was one of the first to do that. And in all of his films, if you look back at all of them, there's something that he was going something was going on in his personal life, and he addresses it in in those films. And those films led to either there was there was always like a film, an album, and a tour. And he repeated this process, you know, four four times. Um, in, in the first one that he did, he uh, one of the first things that he did that became publicly known, he got in an argument with his wife, and she was trying to leave the house, and um, he shot the tires out of uh, her Mercedes. And he said, well, you could leave, but you ain't leaving in that car. <laughs> and he used that, he used that in, his, in that first show, that Richard Pryor Live in Concert film that I was telling you about. And then he did it later, even when he did... Even when he, you know, ended up uh, almost, you know, killing himself, he used that in, in another film where he talked about, um, and there was a joke that he did at the end of that film, if you see it, and it was a guy holding, uh, he held a match in his hand. He said, you know, I know a lot of you people, uh, you know, you guys are cracking on me and making jokes about me when I almost exploded and. You know, he made jokes about even how that happened. You know, he said he was uh, he was having cookies and milk, and the milk exploded, uh, which is obviously not the case. <laughs> he was this. <laughs> but he always had a way of turning, you know, his, his, his being vulnerable enough to share. Because usually from my position as a strategic, as a manager or publicist, once you have something that uh, is a crisis and it's, you know, and it's a where you have to either apologize or something that you want to put behind you. You try to do it as expediently as well. You, you're contrite. You apologize. You say, you says, you know, you learn from it. It's not going to happen again. Um, and then you move on. But he's one of the first people that I've worked with and that I've even seen in the industry who repeatedly made mistakes but then marketed in them in a way in which people could accept them. And they it made... Uh, people more endeared to him for let for him taking onus of it and sharing those experiences, letting them know what really happened at that given time and, and turning it into humor. Um, and I don't think anyone's really done it as well as he did. Wow. Cause I, I was also reading where, um, stars such as Elvis Presley, um, Michael Jackson, Prince, you know, Robin Williams, Marilyn Monroe, Eminem, you also mentioned Whitney Houston and and um 
Amy Winehouse, they all they all rallied around, you know, each other, and uh, and not allowing each other to to get blackballed by the industry. Can it, can you explain that to the listeners? That that part. Well, I, I was don't reading. think I said that. I don't think that I implied that. What I said is, uh, what I've tried to explain is that people that have dealt with uh, personal um, you know, whether they they had some form of addiction or not, there was some mm-hmm. kind of something in common that those people shared, but they, it wasn't something that they collectively, um, because they all were at different times. Um, and they all dealt with their addiction. You know, some, some people didn't know that, for example, Prince had an addiction until very late, you know, Michael, you know, each of them dealt with their own, demons right. in different ways so they didn't right. band together or anything i think that um we all you know you, you pull for people that are going through their you know um there, there's i think fans get so attached to fame and stars that they feel like they're part of their lives and so you know just like you have a buddy or a friend you know you root for them and you hope that they're going to get over that whatever their their demons are you know, and I think a lot of people uh, pulled for those people and wanted them to, you know, get over their their addictions, and it just didn't happen. That's right. Well, Mr. Hervey, uh, let everybody know where they can purchase your book before we get into more on the book about the book. Let everybody know where well, they the can name go. Of the, book, the name of the book is The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. It's on uh, um, HarperCollins Amistad uh, Publishing, and it's available everywhere. So you can uh, you can go online, you can buy it, you can check your local bookstore. Um, it's available in three formats. It's uh, available as a hard hardcover book. It's available as an audible audible book, um, where you can listen to it, and it's also available as an ebook. So if you wanted to watch it on a Kindle, or or you know you want to read it on a Kindle. Um, so it's available in every format that's, that's, that people like to read now these days. All right. Anybody else have anybody have a question for Mr. Hervey? Well, I, I'd just like to say that. Um, oh. oh, go ahead. Out that, first of all, when, 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 uh, when Ramon was at Rogers and Cohen, I think most people uh, just saying it doesn't really uh, – Give the importance of of what Rogers and Cohen was, and what it meant for someone like Ramon to be there at that period, which I consider uh, the golden period in entertainment. Um, and, I, and I guess everybody might think their own period is golden, but I think that to have a period where you have um, major—that's right, Roy. Uh, and our, our period is the most golden, right? I, I think. <laughs> I, I always think so. I think so because okay. you, you got out here Michael Jackson, Prince, Rick. Um, you got all the, the uh, Rod Stewart, and and you still got the Rolling Stones and the rest of them. But that was the world of, that we were in, and that was the world that Rogers and Cohen was representing, uh, which is hard to understand. Like this, a, a company that's got most of the major acts there. And, you know, I think their goal was um, 
their role was to, to take a, a group that was either famous and make them more famous. Otherwise, you weren't with Rogers and Cohen. Uh, that's the way I saw it. Um, and I think that part of the role that y you, you had was either to to uh, enhance that and to, to um, I know, uh, sort of babysit <laughs> some of these clients um, to, to make sure <laughs> that they feel, fulfill what their, you know, their potential was. I know, I know part of my role as a manager, that's, that's, that was part of what I had to do. And that wasn't what I really wanted to do. What I really wanted to do was to enhance the um, my clients and make them make them more famous and make them more money. And and so as a result, we went to companies like, well, when we went with you, you were with uh, the Gibson Group. Okay. Well, that was my company. That was your company. When Rick okay. started, yeah, that was my company. I was partner yeah. in that company. We when I had Jeff Rogers and Cowan when I started working with Rick there. And, you know, I got to work with Rick on Street Songs, which to me was, it still stands as the most successful album of his career. And, uh, I mean, he was, you know, he was really hot then, and those songs were humongous. I just saw where, I was just watching MTV, the, Music Video Awards last night, and um, what's her name? The host. She has a new song out that sampled uh, Super Freak. Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Nicki Minaj. Yeah, remember Leroy? I told you that the other week that Nicki Minaj yeah, was um, I mean, Yeah. What, what, yeah. what a surprise! Performed that song last last night. Yeah, what a surprise that she would pick a song that was a hit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, I always yeah, what Leroy is saying, DJ, at that time, there was no blacks. I was the only black executive at that company that he's referring to. So oh, wow. there was a lot of a lot of us were doing things for the first time that had never been done before. So that was my challenge there was, you know, I, I became the first black there. And I also became the, the company was 51 years old. Uh, after I'd been there for two years, and I also became the very the first black vice president they ever had. So that was a really great opportunity for me to, you know, to advance my career, but hopefully to open the doors. You know, I think for me, I always wanted to, uh, you know, I wasn't one much where I want to go out and and march and hold up things, but I wanted to be able to be a person of action and to show people that people of color that we had the same abilities and the same smarts and intelligence and savvy, and we could, we could be successful in the business if we were given the opportunity. And, you know, they gave me that opportunity to prove myself and to show that I could compete with, you know, all white people who had been doing the job much longer than I had. Oh, wow. Because you were, you were, if you were part of Rick's crusade to get, uh, the black artists on MTV, right? Weren't you part of that? that... It was my idea. Okay. Now tell us about so, that. Yeah. Well, what happened was, first of all, Rick had two of the biggest songs, Give It To Me Baby and Super Freak, and MTV would not play the the videos. Um, but they weren't playing any black videos at the time. They weren't playing Michael Jackson. They weren't playing Prince. They weren't playing any of the big stars. 
So what happened was there was a billboard conference, and I found out about it, and I realized that um, there was uh, a panel on the state of the video video music, you know, video industry. And one of the women on the panel was a woman by the name of Gail Sparrow, and she was head of programming at MTV at the time. And I had my own relationship with MTV because I used to represent Bette Midler. And Bette Midler, I worked on the very first MTV Awards when Bette Midler hosted it with Dan Aykroyd. So I was involved in all the formative meetings uh, because they asked Dan and and Bette to come in and meet when they picked the, the, the space thing and all that, you know. So we were part of that whole process of the first MTV Awards show. And I knew I met all those people at that time. Um, and I was trying to find a political way where we we could get Rick to speak about the issue of black videos getting played on MTV, but not Rick's videos. The whole goal was to talk about it on a broader scale and not to be uh, aggressive about it, but just to put it ask the women, what is your, can you please explain to the panel, to all of us, because there were no other artists on that panel. Rick was the only one. So the goal was to have him just raise the question, make, put the pressure on her to talk and explain why MTV doesn't feel that any black artist, not just Rick, any black artist is not worthy of being on the channel. Um, but it kind of backfires. <laughs> Because once you give Rick a mic, you know, I mean, sometimes it just doesn't, uh, he had his own agenda. And so, well, I, you know. That part, because basically, um, uh, I was there also. Uh, yeah. Uh, we we had a lot, of, lot at stake. And you can remember the meetings and the times that we tried to get all the other artists involved in that. And the, no, 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 no I, one, I'm sure going to get to that, but the. The point was, yeah. boy, that that the, there was a plan that we all agreed on, and it did we we weren't able to implement it because well, you know, Rick didn't follow so the like, plan. Uh, what Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan when they get into the ring. And yeah, all those plans Tyson all says, apart. You get hit in the face, but if you're yeah. doing the hitting, then you know <laughs> it's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, Rick didn't get hit in the face. He did the hitting. Yeah. So, I mean, but it, 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 in the end, in the end, aside from all of that, the objective was achieved. And that, yes, that was indirectly. I feel that it was a positive. Rick did get additional publicity. He created more fervor about the pro, about the reality of MTV. In fact, MTV came to uh, to me and said, look, if you could get Rick to uh, back off, because uh, we were on ABC good night, uh, tonight. Uh, we did a bunch of stuff. Nightline, yeah. We did a bunch of stuff. So the, the issue was not going away. And, um, and they came to me and said, well, you know, if he would pull off, then we'll reconsider um, our position. And I said, what do you mean you reconsider? Are you saying you'll, you'll, you'll put his, his uh, videos on? Or are you saying you'll consider it? Because, you know, if you're not going to offer something, then, you know, it's too late. I mean, he's already, you know, he, he wants to do this stuff, and I don't really have control over that. 
And unless I can tell him, hey, if you don't, you know, if you don't badmouth MTV anymore, they're going to put your videos on, then it'll be up to him to do that. But they, they never made a, a formal commitment. And what it actually ended up happening, and this is in the book, but I'll give it away. Walter Yintikoff, who was the head of CBS, it got to him because he was pissed that Michael Jackson's videos, you know, Michael Jackson was even bigger, yeah. and he had number one records and everything, and his, his videos couldn't get played. So he threatened to pull all the other CBS artists off of MTV if they didn't play Michael's record. And Warner Brothers. And I think it was Billy Jean or one of one of one yeah. of his biggest songs. They wouldn't play it. Uh, and so finally, Michael Michael didn't step forward. We, we talked to him personally about coming forward. He didn't step forward. So no, nobody did. Not nobody backed Rick. That was it. He he went out there on his own and he didn't get the. There was a way to do that, but it just didn't work out. But, again, I do think that we did help to fuel the conversation and the fervor, and eventually Michael was the one who got the credit for breaking the barrier, and he did break the barrier, and it was because Walter Yitzchak threatened, you know, he had that power, and he he said, look, if you guys don't do this, I'm going to get everyone off, and I'm going to go on a campaign and say that you guys are racist. And they finally, you know, Rick wasn't big enough to to do that. We didn't have the support of the label. He took this on his own, on on by himself. And Michael had the back record label in the, in the in the business at that time. Well, I, I don't think it was Rick that wasn't big enough. It was Motown, because we well, no, we I'm had. I mean, as a single star, up. he didn't have the clout to, that Michael had. And and Michael had the support of the most successful record label in the business at the time, so we're not mm-hmm. we're not really mincing, you know. Was was Rick a bigger star than Michael? No, he was not. I don't believe that. No, but he but was it, a big I, star. Yeah, well, nobody's bigger than Michael, but at the same time. Yeah, well, that's all I'm. That's all I'm saying, bro. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, Michael didn't step up. Prince didn't step up. Marvin didn't step up. Stevie didn't step up. None of them stepped up. That's right. But they didn't. But they all got the benefit of Rick stepping up. Yes, ultimately, you know, history will rewrite itself, but you were there, I was there, you know, so we we know what happened. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's go back to Al. Al, any other, you got another question now? Yes, I'm, I'm on the, uh, <clears throat> yes, I'm on the title. Uh, number eight, attaining a fame requires the media's endorsement. <clears throat> Can you give me a little understanding on that, a little bit more information on that? Sir? Well, the, the the bottom line is that the like the public is our, is actually the final arbitrator of fame in my mind, in my opinion. And the only the, if the public doesn't know about you, then they don't they can't use their voice. That's where the media becomes the conduit. So the more the media writes about you and writes about your success, um, and that's what media does. They just look at, you know, they look at the entertainment business as a conduit to sell whatever they're doing, whether it's television, magazine, or whatever. And they look at the top entertainers and they say, well, we need to get this person in our magazine because people are enter- are showing an interest in them. So if those media, if the major media outlets um, and this is, you know, at that time it was radio, it was television, 
I was newspapers. It was a lot of magazines. So the more coverage that you got, the more opportunity you had to reach mass appeal. And that's why the, the, the media is so important because they, they are your conduit to the public. And the more that they write about you and talk about you, uh, and they're also a liability if you don't know how to use them. Because they can burn you out just as quick as they can help to make you famous. When, they, when the media says, oh, we don't want to talk about them anymore, that message gets spread to the public. Or the public is not responding if things don't. You know, to me, fame, ultimately fame and success is a marriage between whatever art form you're pushing and commerce. So when you have great music and it's commercially viable and people are buying it, then you have the potential to be successful and gain fame. When those two things, if that fusion doesn't happen, then it's unlikely that you're going to become successful and famous. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And that's where the media plays a real, you know, they're a vehicle that helps to create that marriage solidify that marriage of connecting the art form with the money <laughs> with the commerce and the more successful it is and the more the media wants to you know because when you call you as a publicist when you call the media and say hey, you want to hear story well what what what's the how many records have they sold or uh, what, who else has covered them you know they're checking and they're doing the research is this person really hot or are we just getting hyped so that's that's where the media comes in because they do become like your your, your channel, it's your your conduit uh, to fuel and drive whatever it is that you're trying to help become successful as a product or brand. You know, nowadays they everything's a brand, but you know, branding the term brand has been around for the 50s, but you know, since social media, everybody I think has to take a just a our moment of a pause because social media is like a preteen. It's not even a teenager yet. It's only been around for 12 years compared to newspapers and radio started in the 1800s. Uh, television started in the, it was first invented in the thirties and then it became popular, you know, in households in the fifties. So that you're talking about centuries and hundreds of years where media was so different. And now when you look at social media and all the digital uh, aspects of how that has been converted, most magazines now are digital or a combination of digital. Digital really c c controls. There's more digital media than any other form of media available. So it does play a huge part on the level of success um, and it's it's always been that way, no matter what the format is. But I just think that there's so much more people feel uh, with followers and whatever that. But it still comes down to media. And media doesn't even accept social media fame as the same as it does as standard fame. So people who are most of the most famous people on social media are people who are already famous, who are taking advantage of the platforms. And they get more press, they get more media coverage than the people, than the 1% of people who do become famous on social media. And of that 1%, there is a percentage of people who were totally unknown 
and they went on social media, and they're making millions of dollars, and they're famous. Wow. Uh, but they're not worldly famous. One of the most interesting cases is there's a young kid named Ryan. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He does, uh, him and his family decided that they were going to review toys. This guy's been doing this for like four years. I think he was seven or he was single digits when he started off. The first year that they started reviewing toys and Mattel and all these companies started using them, they made over $22 million in advertising. Wow. But, again, that's the exception. That's not the rule. So there are success stories like that where social media can, you know, everyone can be an entrepreneur on social media. You can start from nothing. You can post some pictures. And you can, uh, you know, you can get followers and, and you can try to get sponsors. Um, uh, uh, the other thing about social media is sponsors. Most sponsors don't really want to pay you, but they'll give you gifts. You know, they'll do trade-offs. If you get us a certain amount of people, uh, you know, we'll give you a certain amount of free goods. So a lot of people don't really understand, but it is still it gives people a voice. It gives them an opportunity to earn income. Um, or to change their lives and uh, and start businesses that thrive and only exist on social media. But right. just remember, you know, it's it's, it's only one percent. One percent. In the very top tier, but you know, if you're a person that was you were making, you know, I don't know, twenty thousand dollars a year, and you come up with a concept that works on social media, and all of a sudden you make it. $200,000 a year, that's a nice living. So there are people that are making a, a nice living. That doesn't mean that they're going to become household names and famous. But they can they can actually have a, a business that's successful and not be famous at all. So I think if you go into it with that understanding, it all depends on what, you're, what you aspire to be and whether what you aspire to be can really accomplished using it oh wow okay Al any more questions anybody else uh, go ahead Al okay I have one more uh, don't be obsessed about becoming famous okay you took mine <laughs> go ahead just obsessed obsessed to be the best Yes. Do the, do the, yes, do your best. And that, right. that's, uh, that's a big message of the whole book, you know, because, again, it's it's me really, you know, using the case studies of the people that I represent and showing that each of these people took a different path and they, they didn't obsess about being famous. Not one of the people that, you know, all the people that I represented, they just wanted to be at the top of their game. They wanted to win. Um and and they wanted to be known, you know, they just wanted to be the best that, that they could be. And I think that that's really, uh, if that's your motivation, you have a possibility of, of being successful if that's your goal. You know, because when you give it your all and you give your best and you get the return of that, that's more fulfilling than what what you think fame is going to do. Because at some point, every person that I, you know, that I mentioned in the book, there was a there was times when they 
they they had lulls in their career and they weren't famous. They they lost their their shine on fame, you know. And and when you do that, the question is, what do you do with your life when you're not the center of attention anymore, or people are not graveling to be around you or to see you, or people talk to you about being a has been. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. They had like two hits, you know. And how do you adjust to not having fame? But when you're successful or when you're giving your all and you're and you're, you believe in yourself, um, and that's your driver. Then, the, whether you are famous or not, you'll you'll be able to absorb those times when you're not as famous as you were before. And you know that's right. If you do an album where you believe that you you did a great album, the music's really strong, and maybe it's not as successful as you would have liked. But it could be a stepping stone to a better album the next time. But you didn't give up. You didn't. You didn't give up on trying to do your best because the only thing you concerned about was fame. And that's you know that's just reality of life. That in everything that you do, there's there's no there's no way to achieve perfection in life as a person or in a relationship. There's going to be ebbs and flows and high points and low points. And it's how you react to the low points that will give you the strength and the character that you need to get over them. Success is just like a matter of patting on your back or you get to spend a little bit more money, but then you know it's not going to stay that way. Wow. Wow. Again, uh, Mr. Hervey, let everybody know where they can uh, get your book at again. That are, that's everywhere, everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's right everywhere. That's what I've been told. I haven't gone out there. I can't tell you I've been to every place where it's sold, but I've been told that you can get it everywhere. So any, if you're a book I, buyer I, or you haven't bought books before, oh, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy yeah. it on uh, E. Dalton's. Um, you can buy it, like I said, on smaller uh, retail stores in, in your hood. Uh, there's some black websites, uh, you know, black booksellers too, that, that you can look up, and you can find it there too. All right, and you know, in all your you know four decades in the business, uh, what what stands out to you today? That's like, oh man, you know, this is you know, it's not good for music. You know, from back when you know you started in the music, what what is something that you know that that like me, it, I have a lot of irritation with some music and stuff that that's being played today. What what is something, or I'll make the I make the question like this: What is something that you could change in the music business today that would be good for the business? Yeah, that's the question. Yeah. Um, I think that. The most problem I have is that while people have more access to music than they've ever had ever before, through Spotify, through Apple Music, through all the digital music sites, there's more people consuming music than ever before in history. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, if you look on YouTube, even uh, the amount of views that you can get on one video was impossible any time in my career, you know, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, you couldn't get like, uh, you know, millions or billions of views of anything. 
But the problem is, is because of the system, it's, there's two things that have happened that are troubling to me. One is they've reduced the value of music because we're back to being a pennies business. So you make pennies on the dollar because in the 70s, um, record companies switched to the album format as a way to monetize and better, make better money from music than just selling singles, 45, etc. And, you know, when, even when Apple, uh, when iTunes started, they were the first company that actually were willing to pay artists anything for what had become a free business. And so they started doing 99 cents and then $1.29 were for superstars. So our music, the value of our music is continually going down. So now it's streaming, so you pay a subscription for the artists and the record label and all the people that benefit, the writers, whatever, everyone is splitting pennies instead of dollars. And in order to make dollars, you have to have like 45 million um, streams. You know, 45 million streams, I think there was a, uh, the song Happy by Pharrell. He didn't even make $200,000 off of, off of Happy on streaming because mm. it's a penny's business. So that, because they destroyed it, for the most part, they destroyed the album format. That's what I think. And that's been very disruptive to the music industry because now a lot of young artists, they don't get a chance to even do albums because the record companies don't want to waste the money doing an album when they know that people are only going to buy one track at a time. They're only going to listen at one track at a time. And so that makes it very difficult for our business to break, you know, to have new artists. And, and these companies, Spotify and Apple Music, control the distribution of music. So as time has gone on, first there was a lot of independent companies or whatever, and it just keeps shrinking. There was only five major distribution companies before these streaming services came into, you know, mass consumption. And now there are... Most of the record companies, they don't distribute records anymore. They just market them. And they're at, they're at the bequest of the streaming services. And the streaming services are, they don't really, they just, they need the artists to drive their subscriptions. And iTunes use artists to sell their, their, their software, you know, their iPods or whatever. They didn't really... You know, he didn't really care about making a lot of money off the music. He wanted to have the music available to be able to put on their other equipment. So, again, the, the, the thing that I would change is, or what I think needs to be changed, and, and there is a conscious effort to try to do that, is how do we raise the level of the value of music again so that artists can actually <laughs> earn a living you know, um, from from their art. It's very, very difficult for artists to, who are starting off to look ahead in five years and think, you know, well, if I we keep releasing these singles and I do a few dates, then I'm going to have a secure, you know. The percentage of artists who are successful is very low. And so oh, I think no. that, 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 that worries me in terms of the amount of, if there was a way to, better monetize 
art music because as long as I've been in the industry, it just seems like it keeps going down. Except for those privileged few. You know, when you're at the very cream of the top, you're always going to make money. You get the sponsorship deals. You get, But there's, there's so many uh, people making music that are not making money from their music. Wow. And, and I noticed, you know, in your book as well, you know, you talk about Richard, you talk about Rick. And also one that you talk about that, that jumped out to me was Little Richard. What was it about mm-hmm. Little Richard in the industry where they didn't really, I mean, he he did his thing. Why wouldn't they give him his just dues, you know, you being around him? What, what was the real reason? Well, I think, you know, there were two things. I mean, Little Richard was uh, flamboyant. Um, he was flamboyant and black. Those are two two strikes against him right there. Um, and in the fifties, you know, they weren't they weren't trying to make black people famous. You know, black people were you know couldn't even drink out of the same water fountain. So mm-hmm. they weren't. You know, white people didn't care about uh, they anything they could do to keep black people down. Um, and I also think you know, and you know, I love Little Richard, and I, I enjoyed. And, uh, you know, I did my best to help him out. But it's hard for to give one person credit for inventing a music, art, you know, a, a music genre. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult. And there are people before him who did contribute to what uh, became, quote-unquote, rock and roll. Did he make an imprint on rock and roll? Yes, he definitely made an imprint, and he did some things that that had not been done before. Did he really invent rock and roll? I think if you look at history, if you did your homework, you would say, I don't know about that. It just depends on how, what what you're defining as being the inventor of. You know, I mean, there's 32 notes, and everyone has different ways of using the notes. The notes in music have never changed. They've been going on for whatever. So the question is, you know, his chords, you know, Chuck Berry had chords, Bo Diddley had chords, uh, Rosetta Tharp had chords, and they all, you know, there's, there's so many people that did their own little stamp on the immersive effect of what became rock and roll. I definitely think he's one of the, the pioneers um, but I do think that all of those people who were part of the genesis of, of the genre becoming popular, um, who were black, they, they all suffered the same uh, second-class citizenship. You know, and, and all blacks in every area, whether you're in politics, uh, whether you were a baseball player, you know, why we, why we had the Negro Leagues. I mean, you look at our history, and we were separated, and we were, you know, we were disenfranchised in as many ways as possible. And music was was no different than any other part of society. Wow. So anyone black in those days suffered, the, you know, the same thing that Little Richard suffered. He wasn't a one-of-a-kind, like everybody was down on Little Richard, but they found ways to... You know, one of the, you know, uh, Tootie Fruity, Good Golly, Miss Molly, most of his songs were covered, and they would cover him like Pat Boone covered uh, Tootie Fruity and made it a, a hit. And that's been, <laughs> yeah, that's been happening. You know, Pat Boone, 
That was a rough hit, you know, but so, yeah. Tutti yeah. Fruity. So, oh, Rudy. Tutti Fruity. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but, you know, at those times, you couldn't even, black people weren't even allowed in the same venues as white people. Mm. So you couldn't, you know, Richard used to tell great stories how, you know, like if you owned black records and you were white, you kept them like, you know, under your bed or under your mattress. And you never let your parents knew that you even played a record by a black artist. And like stations would not play um, black music. Many of the stations would not support any, any black artist. And there were no, you know, there weren't, there weren't R- enough R&B stations uh for any black artist to really become famous on. Right. I have um, I have two more questions. So it was um, just a cultural thing is what I'm saying. In my right. in, in my research and whatever, I think he was a victim in a way that so many other artists were also victims. Yeah, that's what uh Charles Charles Glenn. Yeah, I had Charles Glenn on on the show and he was said that said the same words you said that Richard, little Richard was a victim. Yeah, he said the same thing. He was uh, Little Richard's bass player. Charles Glenn from Ozone. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, the other question I have is uh, number seven. Dream beyond the glass ceiling. Explain the glass ceiling for those that are trying to figure well, out what that means. To me, the glass ceiling is is don't put a ceiling on what you can accomplish. And and I think that's a, you know, whenever you're dreaming, you've got to dream beyond what you think you can achieve uh, because that motivation is, is what is the, is the driver. So if you put limitations on, if you can see it, and why I say glass, because if you can see beyond that ceiling, then you can reach it. If that, and, and you can see up there, but if you block it out, and you put, you should just say, okay, there's a roof on this, and I just want to get this high, and then I don't want to go higher. When you get to that point, it's the same thing for me. I'm still learning more every day. So if I stop, whenever I stop learning, then I've lost it because there's always something else you can learn. You can never get to the top and just say there's nothing else. I know everything. There's nothing else that I can do to better myself as a person. Um, to gain more knowledge, and that that glass ceiling is a metaphor for the same thing. It's just you have to keep striving and never, you know, never rest on your laurels. Like to me, what I've always tried to do is just what's next. Once you accomplish something, then there's always got to be something else for me. I, I don't waste a lot of time. Um, that's why writing this book was kind of hard because I'm going back into my past, um, and I'm trying to cast a, a light on it but also in a way in which a lot of that um i don't think about it every day you know it's not like i live in the past i live in the present and i'm constantly thinking about what can i do next to continue to move my life forward and that's to me looking through the glass ceiling all right anybody else got any other questions anybody else because this question I'm gonna ask is for you know, for you, uh, Hervey and and Leroy. Um, this is going back to the industry. You know, all the the years you guys put in. Do you think um, 
the question I want to ask is, do, do you think it's, uh, labels should take artists' music from them and want their masters? Do you think that's fair when they're not really making the money that the label should be giving the artists? Because I was researching, you know, from doing some research, and I just wanted to throw this up tonight uh, for you and uh, Leroy. What is y'all's opinion on that? I'll let Leroy go first. Well, he's a lawyer. First of all, um, you know, when a client approaches me about what kind of deal or whatever, the first my first question is, who are you as an artist? If you're not much of an, if you know, if you're unknown and you don't have anything and you're trying to make it then, I mean, the, the label is taking a gamble on you. So, I mean, if I'm taking a gamble on you, then I've got the upper hand. Now, you get the upper hand if it does something. And at that point, you, you can start making some demands to get a fair share. I mean, that, that's just how I, I look at it. And, and any, not just in the music business, but uh, just about anything. Because first of all, uh, I know many artists who have had I think, great songs and they did not want to take a deal. And 10 years later, they come back to me and say, can I get that deal now? Well, you, you missed the deal. So my, my whole point with this is that I, 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 I think that if there's an opportunity for a label to assist you, then get a decent lawyer who can get you a, di a good deal. But as I tell people, I say, you know, I can get you out of the worst deal or the best deal if you hit because there's an incentive on both ends for the parties to negotiate. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. makes a lot of sense. I mean, what you have to understand, record companies, in a way, are in the loan business. So they give you access to their networks, their staff, their people, the people that they're paying to run these companies in return for rights. And they expect to, you know, hopefully be successful with you so that that money that they invest in your you know, launching your career, there's the key word that every artist should understand. If they don't understand it, they need to look it up, but it's called recoupment. And when you recoup something, it means like you have to pay it back. <laughs> what Ray Leeway was basically saying is that's what the record business is based on. They're based on you give us your rights, we give you a platform, you pay us back what we um, it's like the same way as if you buy a home and the bank loans you the money. They loan you the money, you pay the bank back the money, and then you own the house. That's the same way record deals are structured in theory, is they want rights to your likeness, name, and image in return for whatever value they place on that. The less you bring to the table, the less value they're going to give up. So a lot of companies now... They don't give any advances. 
And they also don't, you know, back in the day, they used to want record deals for like seven, seven years. As long as seven years now, record companies, you know, they may only want to sign for a year, maybe two years, because they 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 don't want that um, they don't want to have that commitment to you any more than you want to be committed to them. So they want to be able to move on. If you're losing money for them, they don't want to have to keep investing in something that's not um, profitable. So it's a catch twenty two. You know the. The thing that I found um, is that just the labels, the deal in and of itself, the fact that they don't pay the same amount for advances that they used to, and also they're not paying the same amount of money um, for marketing either. So the question is, why go to a label? And it's, a, it's the same thing with, with what Leroy just said. If you don't have any money to support yourself or your career and you need some help, it's better to have something than 100% of nothing. So to me, I would say the same thing. Look, you don't have the money to do social media. You don't have the money to do this. You don't have the money to do that. So if you're going to be an independent artist, you have to fund yourself. And if you're not in a position to do that, then to me it is worth it to take a gamble on yourself, hope that you make and earn this company money. As soon as they start making money, you can ask for money which is what artists do all the time. You know, even, even though their contract doesn't stipulate for it, um, you can go and say, hey, look, we know this record is selling. Uh, Leroy, can you go into the label and see if, if you get us a couple hundred thousand dollars so that we can, you know, live? And record companies will advance you that money as long as they feel like it's a worthy, you're a worthy investment. So there's different ways where there's back and forth playing and negotiation. Once you have a deal, if you're winning, if you're losing, it's pretty much a done deal. That they, they, they can drop you um, and just say, "Hey, it didn't work out." Um, but you can walk away from that. You don't really owe the record company any money. They may lose money on you, but they just decide they don't want to lose any more money, so they let you go, and then you can go to another record company. All right. Anybody else have any questions? One once. Oh, I, I have a question. Go ahead, Mr. Uh, Al. Uh, uh, independent artist. Uh, what if an independent an independent artist have a, a maybe say fifty 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 grand? And he can invest it on himself, but he don't know how to invest it on himself. He can maybe uh, come to someone mm -hmm. like you, uh, uh, Leroy, to guide him through it. Can he move a nice distance? Can he move a pretty far distance with that? And if he have a, uh, and if his music is uh, good, I really, I think it depends on the strategy and, and what the yeah. what he has. If he has. Does he have enough songs to sustain? You know, because the thing is, you can't, this, this idea that you can become, yes, there are cases where one song gets out there and it works, but again, that's not the precursor of how the business runs. There's always exceptions to the rule, but most people are not going to be successful on their first single. So the question is, what what is that $50,000 going to cover? How long are you are you able to invest in how long can you stretch that money and spread out your music?
so that you can really establish a brand over a period of months. And it might, you know, it might take a year. You know, you look at some of the people that are independent, you know, they, they may be two years in before they really are at a point where they're starting to see growth in their brand. It may not even happen in the first year. So that 50 grand will be used up in less than a year. Okay. I think it's just, again, what, too what you many, do with back to consider with um, when you when you got $50,000 and you uh, you got an artist, there's, there's just too many questions that you, you want to, you know, what do you want to do? You want to produce an album, a record? Do you have records already? Um, do you you, you want to hire a, a um, distribution company? Do you want to do this? you want to do that? You know, uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions. And you have to look at the artist and look at what he's presenting to you. You know, uh, and, and money on top of that, then, then that, you know, I, I want to know, you know, this, I want to listen to the music, see what, if the music is there, and where are you with the music? And because, uh, um, you know, 50000 may not get you, get you anywhere in this business today. Because yeah, I know it really a lot of people are charging. It seems like a lot of money, but it's, it's really not in the bigger bigger frame of thing without all having all those questions answered it really becomes yeah. what does it come to you with and then what and then that would determine look i have a finished record i have fifty thousand dollars all my pictures are done i have five videos you know it just depends on what they bring to the table mm-hmm. well, i know guys go out and make a video and what is your plan with the video you don't even know if that is going to work. And you, you, you've created a video. You put all this thing into everything. And what is your plan? Hi. Um, excuse me, guys. My name is uh, FT, by the way. They call me E.T. Um, I, have a, I have a friend. Uh, I don't know if you guys know him, Don Mizell. Um, I've known Don for years. Yeah. But, um, good guy. you know, I love him to death. Huh? I, he's a good guy. I, I know him and his family. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Cindy. I, I love Cindy. What a voice. Um, but, um, you know, uh, we talked a few times, and uh, uh, he wanted me to hire him as a consultant you know, for me, but, um, you know, to make a game plan. But, um, and it was, it was, I mean, I don't say it was an absurd number, but I honestly, looking at everything and researching everything in order, even if you have a great plan, um, I don't think $50,000 is enough, um, just depending on what level you're, you know, you're looking at. But um, my question to you guys uh, is, what do you think is a reasonable amount with a great plan? Or does it really just depend on the plan? Well, again, I think it depends on the plan and what the artist brings to the table. What is Whatever amount is, what does it cover? 
you know, because it's not only, like, you know, the music is the first thing. Do you really have good music? It, is it, could it be commercially viable? Do you need to have a producer? Do you need to pay someone to actually rework the songs, whatever? So that, you could eat up a lot of money just getting the right music. But then you need, you know, you need PR, you need social media. You know, if you don't have, you need these things to, you know, you have to have someone that does that. You know, if you don't do it yourself, mm-hmm. some some kids or some people do do that. But again, it just there's so everything in our industry costs money. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have pictures, you don't have videos, you don't have music, you don't have social media, you don't have PR, you don't have promotion or marketing dollars. All that comes out of whatever that amount is that you're talking about. Yeah. It just depends, again, how much do you, as the independent artist, bring to the table. If you only got a couple of songs and those songs aren't hits, uh, you know, you're starting from scratch. So it, it's mm-hmm. hard to say what would be the amount of money, you know, because if you really look at a plan, you know, say, what the way a record company, you know, they look at, you know, most deals, um, they commit to uh, releasing a record in probably under 18 months, somewhere between a year and 18 months, unless they really hype and you have a finished album and they, they're ready, they love everything on it, they can find ways to move things a lot faster. But if they're signing you and they're developing you, you're probably not going to see a record out for somewhere between nine months and, you know, at the very far side, 18 months. So, you know, you're, you're, you could spend six months just working on the music. Mm-hmm. So it just really depends. There's so many, you know, it, it's really hard to say that uh, one number or one way, one plan can work. You just have to go on. Here's all, you know, when I, I get paid as a consultant, and I'll mm-hmm. say, you know, I've had people I just talked to a guy on the phone, and he said, you know, I've got this music, but none of the music was right, and I just, you know, um, he thinks that you can just send music out to stars and they're going to record it, and that's not how it works anymore. So I just mm-hmm. said, you know, it doesn't really, it's not a money issue, it's just that you don't really have the right music or the right understanding of how music gets made today. So mm-hmm. it, again, it, 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 to me, it always starts with the art and the content, and if, if you are a talent, and you're self-contained, that helps because that saves money. Mm-hmm. Because whatever you're lacking to get those people to work with you, they're going to want to get paid. Right. So it's not right. even about the consultant. It's about, you know, if you need someone to produce, then they're going to give you a budget because producers need editors, they need studios, or, you know, whatever. Even if they're doing stuff, you know, um, on a computer or they're using... Garage band or whatever, you know, they're they're still mm-hmm. going to want to get paid. Well, right, and a lot of what um, Don was telling me too is he was saying like, not too many record labels are interested in artist development like they were in the past because of none. You know, I guess. No record companies <laughs> are really interested right. in artist development. They just want to put their stamp on a hit, you know. Right. They, they, exactly. they, they they want someone that, you know, I started to see a change a long time ago, you know, when they don't even ask for the music first, you call them up and they say, well, how many followers do they have? How many of this, how many of mm-hmm. that? That's what they care about now. Or, you know, now mm-hmm. the latest is TikTok. 
You know, they want to know how many, uh, do they have a presence on TikTok? You know, mm-hmm. so it's, they're, they're looking at the total package and they're looking at ways, as many ways as possible that they don't have to spend money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So that, that's what you're dealing with. You know, they're trying to mm-hmm. cut costs because they're not making as much money on the back end that they used to make when they used to distribute the records. They're mm-hmm. slaves to Spotify and Apple Music as well because those guys are the ones who control the distribution and consumption of music, not the record companies. The record companies right. are funneling and trying to get their music played on them, on those you know, formats on those playlists that exist and influence and make music, you know, uh, successful. Mm. Right. Anybody else? And and remember that for every rule, exception. So uh, there is going to be exceptions, but that is in a low percentage, a very low percentage. Anyone else? I, I want to go back to uh, excuse me. I want to go back to your book on one question, sir. Uh, fame is currency. Infamy is a liability. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the same kind of thing when we were talking about uh, self-destruction or destructive path is that there's a fine line, you know, infamy is kind of, again, it's what I would say is uh, what happened to Will Smith. That's a moment of infamy that's going to be attached to him forever. Um, When you get canceled or whatever, that's, that's infamy. So that's a liability. Anything that distracts and takes away from your success or casts a shadow on it, that's infamy and that's, hard to turn around um, the public can be forgiving of it so it just really depends on how bad it is um, and the public has a, a way of being more forgiving if what you did only hurts you is it, it's self-inflicted is it? infamy it's not as bad as if you hurt someone else and and in what you did. If you made a poor choice and you, you know, you were in a car accident, you drove drunk and you killed somebody, or that's really bad. Anything that you can be prosecuted for and go to jail for. But a lot of the, the, the infamy that's associated with celebrities are things that are self-inflicted. You know, nobody forces them to take drugs or to drink or, you know, so when they're spending time in court because they broke the law, that's infamy. But, Usually that's self-inflicted. You had a choice not to be at this point, at that point. Um, and so th- those, those are situations where if, if you don't have too many cakes, if, if you're not a repetitive person and you just your whole career has, you know. And there are some that, you know, you look at some people, it's just one thing after another. They're just self-destructive and, you know, they just create a pattern and, and uh, it's very hard to turn that around when they turn, totally spiral out of control. 
Um, but you know, my in my role, um, you want to limit the amount of infamy in anyone's career and give it enough time to uh, fall back into you know sort of the, the landscape of things as something that happened in the past and move forward. Give people time to forget it and give them a reason to think to to look at you in a different way. Put it behind you, close close it, get your life together, and then give them something else to show that you're on a new path. That's the best way, I think, to handle infamy. If that person is capable. Some people just exactly. repeat, 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 repeat. And that's just them being themselves. Yeah, and I think in today's business, you see where this is happening, where, you know, their, their support team, like, just bails because they, they realize that, you know, we, we can't fix this. And that's because everything happens in seconds now. Because of uh, uh, social media and everything, you see um, uh, cases of infamy happening in a matter of seconds, and it creates a visual connection with people. So they form their opinions, and they see what happens. That's why what happened with Will Smith was so damaging, because, you know, he did it on one of the biggest watched shows on television. So everyone saw it happen, and they, they have a visceral, they make a decision in that moment whether they think that was right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And those, once you have billions of people with a, a you know, they form, as quickly as that happened, they formed their opinion. And it's very difficult to change public opinion when everyone has seen it at the same time. Well, we always do a Trump and say it didn't happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Don't believe, don't believe, Trump, don't you believe just, you're lying. Just lie your ass off forever. It's like a, it's like Daddy song. It wasn't you. me. It wasn't Thank me. Well, it didn't happen. Get a lie. Stick to the lie. Oh man! Mm-hmm. One of the things uh, uh, that they they make uh, uh, it's 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 not a real person. It's not me, but uh, you know somebody created this thing and went up on there, and it wasn't what really me. It was somebody else. You know, it's like, um, but um, that's a yeah, poor example. Lying yeah. is the worst. It's the worst thing when you lie. It begets other lies. Every lie, when you, when you, the best thing to do is to be honest, because when you lie, there's always another lie behind it. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that you can just lie once. You're going to lie, like a, 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 a lie has a story behind it. Habitual liars, they don't care. They just lie, lie, lie. But it only makes matters worse, you know, when when you you lie and then people are almost there and they're about to forgive you and then uh, then you lie again. (laughs) Well, I mean, do you? Okay, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, EP. Yeah, I, you know. Let's just say, um, if most take Fifty Cent for example, if Fifty Cent went up there and smacked Chris Rock, would it have been as damaging for Fifty Cent as 
Will Smith, isn't it more about who you are and what you, what people feel you represent? Yes, it is. I, I think that um, uh, the whole Will Smith image was proven to be right. a fraud. Mm-hmm. And now, if you did it in such a case, that's, you, you expect a gangster to do that. Right. You expect a gangster to walk up there and do it, but you don't expect uh, Mamas of the Mr. America to go up there mm-hmm. and smack somebody like that. Um, no, so to, to answer your point, I, I think it does depend on who, what the situation is. And for some people, you know, it's worse than for others, um, depending on what they do. So I, I, I do right. think that what you're implying, there is some truth to that. But I think on mm-hmm. in that um, setting, I don't know if anyone would have got off easy doing what, what occurred. Okay. But I, 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 I do, do think, think that it's worth it that everyone I, around I, him, and I, I don't know the, the situation, but I think that everyone who had input in making decisions in terms of post uh, crisis management of that situation aired terribly. Yes, I agree. A lot of poor decisions were made, not just by uh, Will, but his handlers, by the Academy, everyone except for Chris Rock. Chris Rock is the only one that made a good decision. Everyone else involved in and uh, what happened after that, I think uh, that they, they need to accept culpability for not making the right decisions to make, uh, you know, when the apology was made, how it was made, and everything after that. I mean, I think there's been maybe six apologies. And if you do one apology at the right time and it's done right, you don't need to apologize again. One apology. Every time you apologize, it's going to have less effect. Right. Yeah, because then it's like you're begging. You're begging for someone to accept you. Yeah, six times. <laughs> right. They're not. They're not going to change. I mean, if that's your girl and you you say I'm sorry once, if she's not, if you go back and try it again, say, mm-hmm. yeah, you're sorry. Yeah, right. I already heard that. <laughs> I mean, every time you say it, it's going to have less and less effect. I don't want to hear it again. I know you're sorry. Don't talk to him. Don't tell me again. <laughs> but that's just, you know, that's those those are situations where, um, you know, uh, I, I think the whole thing is about the fame and everything is is when you're under a microscope. That's the thing that when you when you're famous, you're you get a lot of perks and you get a lot of privileges, but you also become under a microscope and every that you make is judged more critically than Mm -hmm. if you're just an unknown person. Mm -hmm. So say that was a fan, if that was a fan who went up there and slapped Chris, it would have been totally different because he doesn't have any, you know, no one cares about him. It's just like, oh, he's a crazy man who got in there and he went and slapped Chris Rock. You know, the, the... whether he apologized or not, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. He would have been treated totally different 
he would have been thrown out. Um, he would have been arrested. Um, so there is a double standard there, but, but that's when you become famous, you know, you, everything that you do is going to be judged differently. Wow. Than a regular person, and you have to understand that um, if you if you want to be famous, that the standards for you are not the same anymore. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, when you take that leap from anonymity to wanting to be famous, think back and say, "Wow, what was my life like when no one knew who the hell I was?" I was anonymous, and now everyone knows everything that I do every day. Uh-huh. That's a big jump. The question is, are you ready for it? You know, uh, Exactly, and a lot of people are not ready for it, and they're not fit for it. Yeah, and there are different levels of fame, too. You know, there's the fame where a few people recognize you, and then there's the fame where you can't go anywhere without being exactly. mobbed. Mm-hmm. That changes your whole life. So, so is it? Is it? Is it? Uh, I'm trying to think of the word I want to use. Is it easy enough to say that pretty much Will Smith pretty much blackballed him his own self from the industry, from the you know, from everything? Is that? Can we use that I think term? In, a case, in his case, in case of similar to his, um, what happens is you become a liability for other people to align themselves with you. And that's uh, indirectly, whether you're black, you know, people don't want to take that risk. So they start, you know, they don't want the public scrutiny of making it appear that you support what transpired. So, um, yes, in, indirectly, you, you, you are contributing to yourself being blackballed. Yes. He's not the only one. He's not the first one that's had right. that happen to him. But he's a good example just because it's, just, it's one of the more recent ones. But, you know, if you look at some of these athletes who took drugs and everything um, and got and lied about it, um, those are other people that created uh, a situation where, where people started separating themselves from them. Um, you to look at the Me Too movement and you look at how many men lost their careers over the things that they had done to women um, because nobody wanted to work with them. You know, uh, Russell Simmons, I mean, there's a lot of men that um, have disappeared from whatever they were doing because no, nobody wanted to work with them again. They couldn't afford to take the risk. You know, yeah. and it's, it's in all, it's not only in the entertainment industry, but all kinds of companies where they divested themselves from these guys. Um, and they just said, you know, we can't do business with you anymore. I mean, if you so, remember how big Matt Lauer was on the Today Show, and when's the last oh, time you yeah. saw him on TV? Never. <laughs> Never. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never. Never. Never again. 
Talk about being canceled. That's major cancellation right there. So, I mean, look what happened to Bill Cosby. Yeah. So those are those are even higher level things. And I mean, what Will Smith did is child's play compared to he's going to recover from this. But um, those other situations, that's really when you're talking about blackballing yourself. Those guys really blackballed themselves. Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, he's done. Yeah, yeah, he's got a bad. He's got the. Uh, you know, whenever it's a, whenever it's predator, um, like the Deshaun Watson, I mean, his case, same kind of thing. When there's a pattern of behavior that they can trace, and it's not a one-off, you can't just say, "Well, you know, it was a bad night. I, I was drunk, and I apologize. I, you know." I didn't mean to do what I did, but when you have a pattern of misbehaving and repeating the same things over and over again, people look at you a different way, and that's a hard, it's hard for them to set that aside and just say, oh, well, we can forgive that, but you're only given so many, you know, the average, uh, the rule of thumb is three strikes. So if you've been, if you've got 24 women that are, Accusing you of something, that's way over three strikes. Oh, yeah. That's a story, Ramon. I was in court. I had a, I had one of those cases. And um, so I told the guy he needed to take the plea because he had seven women who were accusing him. So I mm-hmm. explained it. I said, you know, I can beat the first one, and I can probably beat the second one. But the third one is going to make the jury start thinking. Right. And the fourth one is going to be, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, hold it. What the hell? Here's the problem here. <laughs> On the fifth one, they're going to be saying, send him to jail and give him the match. But on the right. sixth one, they send his lawyer with him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, <laughs> What the hell's going on? He represented him? Yeah, take it with 50 charges. Trying to defend 50 charges. Right. In in his case, he had 66 different appointments. Wow. Wow. To to interview uh, massage therapists. 66. And 24 of those accused him of who knows what with the other 44, you know. But who, who interviews 66 women to find one therapist that you like? That's, that's a lot of hell. That's like a job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's an HR. You do an <laughs> HR job. <laughs> I go. I don't know. I never heard any. I don't know any guy that would be with sixty-six different massage therapists if all he was looking for was a massage. <laughs> go down a little that's lower. A, that's a hell of a lot of massage. I tell you. That's right. <laughs> Got a kink in my neck. Can you get it out? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's some hard evidence to. Say, well, you know, you want to give someone the benefit of the doubt, but that kind of evidence, 
is um, that doesn't it defies logic. Yeah, but usually, usually along with that, they usually make some type of statement that each there's no way that each one of them would have known that this person said that, and every last one of the women said the same thing right. as he approached. Mm. The, you know, and it's something that the ordinary person would never say. Right. I know women's scary though now. Women are conniving. No, no, man. <laughs> I, I, don't I, don't, I don't want to touch that because. Um, Me neither. <laughs> I, no, I don't, I'm not touching that either. <laughs> what was going on? I love doing this show, but I don't want people calling me up tomorrow and saying, uh, Ramon, uh, we heard what you said on DJ Sean's yeah. show, and we're yeah. taking your book off the shelf. Oh, <laughs> right. yeah. yeah like, next thing I know, the old-time radio show is done. <laughs> That's right. I we're like, Leroy, I uh, need you to help me on this one. <laughs> My well, well, like, I, I just think. For new, new jobs. <laughs> it's not mm, seven, it's just true. one. <laughs> so convince them with one. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, Mr. Hervey, uh, uh, we appreciate you um, being part of our show, you know, and giving us knowledge on the book and, um, you know, educating us as well on the industry. You know, a lot of a lot of artists uh, do listen to this show, and I hope that some of them got out a lot. You know, from uh, from your teachings. Well, it is you were teaching us, you and uh, Leroy tonight, and um, we have re- very very well appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you guys. Covered a lot of territory, and I uh, appreciate the fact that you guys looked at the book and. And uh, I hope that, uh, you know, that it was a good I, – I definitely enjoyed the conversation, and and, uh, and I appreciate uh, your support. And, uh, you know, I think uh, my, my approach to my, my career beyond the book is, is to always try to give back. And, you know, it's, you know knowledge is, it doesn't mean anything unless you share it, you know. So any time that I've been in a position – where I can share some experiences and, you know, almost anyone that, you know, I'll, I'll give everyone a chance. To, it's a few minutes of my time. And I think that that's something that we, as a culture, needs, we need to help and lift each other up in as many ways as possible. It's the only way we're going to ever get over the hump, you know. Um, so yeah, if I, I'm, I'm glad to help, and um, I hope your listeners enjoyed our conversation. And uh, and all the things that you guys uh, were looking for answers for. Exactly. Because yeah, you know, I know, you know, I also left out, you know, Andre Crouch, you know, one of the biggest gospel entertainers in the industry as well. You know, um, he had a big pack on a lot of people's uh, lives as well too. You know, not only yeah, outside yeah, of gospel, exactly. but you know, White House. You know, he did a lot. As well, and he wasn't. Um, a, a lot of people didn't put him where he he should have been at. 
that's how I feel about him. Yeah, he right. he should have been more. You know, I probably a lot of people say, "Oh, DJ Show, you going out on them?" I think Andre Kraft should have been like where Michael Jackson was. That's just how powerful he was with with the, with the music and the word. Yeah, so I mean, that's how I feel. That's my opinion. Yeah. No, he's, a very, he's one of the most talented artists that you know. I worked with. Uh, he's actually my longest client. I, I worked with Andre for over twenty years. Oh wow! So we had a really close friendship and. Uh, I started off with him as a publicist, and he asked me to be his manager. And uh, yeah, he's—I uh, learned a lot from Andre, and he's really, really talented. The one thing that people never really understood is how great a pianist he was. I tried to get him to do a, a whole record just of him playing piano, because he was an incredible piano player, and you can hear it in his music if you know his music. But he could just flat out play unlike any kind of, you know, not just gospel music, but he could play anything on the piano. And he learned from from sight. And he didn't read or write music. He just had an ear, a natural ear, or an anointed ear. If you know his history, he, he was anointed in church when he was nine years old. And his dad called him up um, to play in front of an audience for the first time. And he played. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he has a he has an he had an incredible, and he passed away a few years ago. But he had an incredible life and an incredible impact on my life and many many people. I mean, when I traveled with him everywhere, I traveled all over the world with him, and he was endeared by white people, black people from so many different. You know, he traveled and over the course of his career over 70 countries he was known that much he's in you know palm books for in catholic churches and some of his songs my tribute uh, just an, an incredibly gifted uh, talent yeah because yeah, he because uh <laughs> the video you know the video got it you know pope john paul the <laughs> second yeah you know oh, on the God. video blasphemy like with madonna prayer? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was interesting. When I read the script, the, and then we laughed about it. He goes, "Man, I could never do this video. My church would freak out." But, uh, but he did contribute to that song. Mm-hmm. I mean, he contributed to some really big songs. He also did the choir for "Man in the Mirror," and he performed that with Michael Jackson at the Grammys. And that performance. It's one of the longest ever on the Grammys. It was like at that time, it was 12 minutes long. That uh, that performance of Man in the Mirror, he put together a 25-member choir. Uh, and that was an incredible uh, performance. Uh, and Michael really liked, uh, uh, he used Andre and a lot of stuff. And if you look back, you can go on YouTube and you can see that Michael brought Andre right at the very front. And there was a, there was a couple of, Times in the song where Michael and and Andre were singing, you know, together right in the middle of the stage. So he had oh, a great wow. love and respect for for Andre. All right. Well, thank you guys. So, hey man, we appreciate it, my brother, and and much love and and respect to you and, you know, all you've done to the industry and brought to the industry and bring it to your book. 
So we're gonna we're gonna be hearing bringing you back for another book soon, right? <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know about how soon, but I definitely want to do another book. So yeah, hopefully the next time around we can do it again. And Leroy, I really appreciate you uh, setting this whole thing up. It was great to talk to you as well and go down memory lane a little bit as well. Yeah, we, we really didn't get into a whole lot that, uh, you know, because we had a lot more experiences than, than that. Yeah, well, some of the stuff, I I have another book that I could put right, but I can't really do it. I'm going to have to take the, that book to my grave. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, I, I, might, I might have a few of those in mind. <laughs> I'll just change the names. I'll just change the names of uh, the people. I won't have your name in it. Yeah, I just I just wanted to stay with the industry. I didn't want to get into the personal stuff of of respect, you know, you know, things like that. that. Yeah, because that's nobody's business. They just got they got to go get the book and read that. You know what I mean? We're not. I didn't want to get into that. Yeah, everything's there. (laughs) If you want to know all the stuff that I can share, I put it in there. That's right. But I want to let everybody know that I went out and got me a copy, and I got my copy at Barnes & Noble. Oh, good. I restocked because they only had two books, and I got both of them, so I hope they restock. Oh, good. Well, that's a good sign. Hopefully they will. I'm sure right. they will, yeah. Uh, Leroy, uh, do you want to tell everybody who Rick James was preferring to that night on the awards to the girl in the back. Nah, I'm just playing. Oh, bear, come on. <laughs> I'm just about to whip you. You probably got to research it. Yeah, nah, yeah. Got to wait for the book. Yeah, got to wait for the book. Got to wait for the book. Okay, hope to see you soon, Ron, and um, okay. we'll talk to you also. Um, is Robin, is she still here, or is she going to sleep on us? I think Robin's gone. Oh, okay. All right, guys, I'm going to uh, bail. All right, all right Mr. All right. Harvey, um, I appreciate you again. I'll be in touch with you soon. Okay, thanks a lot. You. I really appreciate That's it. Right. All right, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you all. All right. Bye bye. Uh, let's see here. Mr. Uh, Liberal, are you still here? Are you still on with us or are you gone? Yeah, I'm still on with you. Okay. Um, uh, let everybody know, you know, about, you know, you got a big uh, exhibit uh, coming up to. Buffalo, New York. Your your pain. Sometimes I keep things separate. I like to keep the legal thing over here, but we can't talk about the art thing now. Uh, I have I'm I'm an artist also, and I have have a major exhibition coming up um, November 11th, 2022 through March 26th. 2023. It's in Buffalo. It's at one of the museums called the Birchfield Penny. Um, I'm looking forward to it, and a lot of people are also. Uh, it's going to be the first major exhibition where 
um, we're still groundbreaking. We're a black as shown solo show at this, uh, at this museum. I hate to say that sometimes because we should be way beyond that right but by about this time. You should be, you know, like I'm just having a show. But it's, it's the first time a minority has had a show at this museum. Um, and um, I'm proud to be the first show. So just a little bit about the show is that um, I'm going to be showing about 75 pieces in retrospective um, of different periods in my my art career. And to enhance the show, I decided to work with um, close to 80 students, uh, 20 of them with the Buffalo Public Schools and um, three other not-for-profits. One's called Squeaky Wheel, which is... Uh, Video production, um, non-for-profit. Another non-for-profit is uh, just Buffalo Literary, and they teach uh, uh, how to write poetry and um, basic writing courses. Uh, and then the third one is uh, Buffalo Center for the um, Arts and Technology, and they do digital um, digital displays. So each one of them is going to have a part in in analyzing Leroy's world of um, and living color is the name of the show, so should be exciting. All right. Mm. Congratulations, Mr. Johnson. There we'll she is. we'll oh, get there. that check right over to you. I'm in a hole. We may stream it live. Uh, a live video, so it's going to be interesting. Well, definitely congratulations. Anytime that we can break a color barrier, it's, um, it's a true win. Um, and I know, like you said, I mean, we should be way beyond that, but mm-hmm. um, thank you for doing that. Um, we, we need it. We need to continue to break barriers. Um, you know, things don't happen in our time, they happen in God's time. And so, um, exactly. Yeah. It's, so it's true. Motivational. Yeah, me, so, yeah, you thank sound, you and congratulations. You, you sound thank like you. a congressman there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did want to do politics a long time ago, but. No, <laughs> <laughs> they gonna put, make me put some bass in my voice too. How y'all doing tonight? What's up? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mister Mister Leroy Johnson, man, we uh, as always when we're here on the show, man, um, we appreciate you always taking time out of your schedule and. And being here or on here when we need you and educating us and, you know, and talking to us and, you know, uplifting, uplifting the artists and things like that that are on here when we get to play their music and things like that. And you already know anything that you need, you know, this station is is yours at any time and, you know, and allowing, allowing myself and Al and Robin to work behind the scenes with, you know, Marion's mu- music and, and trying to get that out there for him and his 
his daughter, you know, his family and things like that. We we pretty pretty much appreciate that, you know, give, giving us the chance to um, show you what we can do over here at Hilltop, and we appreciate well, that. I appreciate the, the the partnership and the camaraderie and the friendship that's yes. developed over the. I don't know how long it's been. Two years now. Two years. Yeah. Two good years. Wow. Two good years. It feels like forever, though. You know? Wow. I do. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I mean, you blessed us with Val Young and JoJo and uh, Alan Admiral and ooh, a lot of people. Howard Hewitt and the list is list is long, and uh, and. You know, still more to more to come, and you know we appreciate that. Well, you know, I'll do whatever I can do. That's what that's what we do with each other. That's right. Other guys, you know, with Al, with um, AB, with you know EB bringing us Kenny Burke, you know, and that was a good show as well too. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, we appreciate it, man. Much love and respect to you, big brother. Okay. Okay, so now you went from three for nine, and you're back up to six for nine. (laughs) (laughs) At least you you ain't fired you, so that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Let me think of something else I can get up to seven for nine or something. <laughs> I'm at I'm at thirty four percent. Yeah, three quarters percent. I'm trying to get the hole. Doing <laughs> great, and then he went south. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's going south with you. <laughs> Even that first day when I was calling you Leroy, boy, I got my ass chewed that next day. Lebron. 
You ever call me Lebron? I said, no. He said, are you? Well, I said, okay. I ain't calling Lebron no more than this. Yeah, you had that 69, 65 pounds all over you. What you say? <laughs> oh man, that was jumped in my ass real quick. Well, <laughs> well, I shaped that up real quick. Never called him Leroy ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Johnson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's writing, writing it 500 times on the chalkboard. Yeah, I'm to write it down. No, he's, he's practicing it because he kind of hesitates every time he says it. He comes like, Man. Man. I was saying that shit. I was saying that shit my damn sleep. Well, one eye open, make sure you would make sure you wasn't standing over top of me. It's all right. Okay, that's it. He does. That's. That's how he practices his vocal lessons. But, <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Mister, uh, we're gonna be bringing, um, we're gonna be bringing um, Ronnie Hudson back on the show in a week, uh, Leroy. And we love the. I would love to, you know, if you uh, scheduling works for you, I would love to bring you back on. Because we have some talented artists such as um, Monique is still with us. Songbird, she got some new music. I would love for you to listen to. Al has some new music. And the young man I was talking a while ago, Mr. EP. I'm just a call away. So I'm I'm going to bring you on the same night as uh, Mr. Hudson and uh, have you guys come on and and, uh, do a listening party for these artists, you know, like we did in the past. And yeah, uh, I have good. some new music. Would you like to hear it? Here it goes. No, no, you stay. You stay right there where you at on Vibes Live Radio. <laughs> let Al and them. Let Al and them. Let Al and them be have the microphone. And we got another guy. Uh, Mr. No Weapon is on with us as well. He got a new, a new song out too. You might love is that you know. Thick thighs save lives. Wow. But I left a good job in the city. No. <laughs> well, you need to go. You need to go back to the city and get a job back. <laughs> you know, nine o'clock is my bedtime. You know that, John. I stayed up two hours yeah. for you, man. Yeah, I really appreciate you, man. Uh, we'll sing at your wedding. We'll bring everybody to your wedding. Yeah, man. <laughs> Well, well, Leroy, man, I appreciate you, man. Love you, big brother, and we'll be talking. All right. Love you all. Thank you. All right. Love you, too. Take care, my Bye-bye. brother. Bye-bye. Okay. God bless. Oh, all right. Let me try to find <laughs> Man, shit. He called me up the next day. He told me, hey, man, what the fuck calls me? You almost got fired. Yeah, I almost got fired, man. He said, man, you gonna stop calling me Leroy, Leroy, man. What the fuck you doing? It's Leroy. Yeah. But um, 
I do uh I do appreciate everybody for coming. Let's do this real quick before we go. Uh Mr. No Webby, you on with us. Uh go ahead and tell everybody where you follow you at on social media. Uh you can follow me on uh YouTube, Mr. No Webin, uh, uh TikTok, uh Instagram, uh Facebook, uh right here. I'm, I'm on the Time Radio Show with DJ Sean. Um, Mr. Al Green Davis. You can catch me on official Al Davis on Facebook, and then you can catch me on Facebook, on my personal page, Facebook, TikTok, uh, YouTube. You can Google me. All It's Al Davis. And you can catch me here on Mondays and Thursdays on the Hilltop Radio Show with DJ Sean and my dysfunctional family. Uh, Rob, Robin, Lynn. Uh, you can find me at Nutbush Diddley. <laughs> nah, you can find me anywhere. You go back and tell her ass you need your job back. <laughs> Wait tables. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me everywhere at Robin Lynn Maven. Facebook, Gmail, YouTube, Twitter. Twitch, LinkedIn, Pinterest, right I here at Vibe, uh, 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 the Hilltop Radio Show. I am streaming Vibe Live Radio. All right, yeah. And Nutbush City Limits, trying to get in. Oh, trying to Lord, get here in. We go with this shit. <laughs> uh, DJ Big Hood, man, welcome to the show, man. Uh, thank you for st- staying on with us, man, and uh, being with us, man. Let everybody know where they can follow you at, Big Bro. You can follow me on Facebook at Big Hood. That's big with two G's. You also see, catch me on Instagram at Hood757, TikTok and Mixcloud at DJ Big Hood. And catch me Monday through Thursday right here with my dysfunctional family on the Hilltop Radio Network. All right. Yeah. And the one and only ST Pierce EP. Yeah. We call him here. Yeah. Ah! Yeah. EP. Yeah. Teddy. I would maybe be 
next to last. Just as long as I'm not last. I, you know, I, I I like being the main act, but I don't like being the last act. I like mm-hmm. being in between when everybody is there. Right. And it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be big because they already told me uh, 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 so many tickets has been sold. I mean, and it's way the numbers is high. The numbers is very high. So it's gonna oh, be yeah. a nice show. It's gonna <laughs> be a nice show, and I'm ready. To, uh, hey, I'm sitting on ready. I am sitting on ready like a bulldog. Yeah. Right. Uh, EP. Oh, go ahead, uh, Al. I'm sorry. I thought you were done. Go ahead, brother. That was EP. No, oh, that was EP. Me. Uh, let everybody yeah, know where you at that weekend too. You at you doing something the weekend? Where yeah, you I'm, at? yeah, I'm in Lan- I'm in Lancaster, PA. Uh, uh, oh, you up there with the Quakers? Party. Yeah, Lancaster, <laughs> You know, they, they wanted some soul music. They said they wanted some soul up there. So they, horse and buggy. I know that's right. They bringing you in on horse yeah. and buggy. Go ahead, brother. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm riding in on the stage, butt naked and flip flops, uh, you know, on the horse. Yep. He'll be coming around the mountain when he comes. <laughs> no, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I'm so upset that I'm missing my brother because, like, all my family going, you know, they love Southern Soul, and all my family going from Chesapeake, Portsmouth, Smithfield, Virginia Beach, like. So I know you got half of my family there. So I know I know you done sold some tickets. They done sold some tickets. And I, and then when I get back, um, I got back Sunday, and then I'm performing in Hampton. So I got to be back there at 5. And I'm like, oh, my God. So your last, is show, I think it showed, I thought it started at 6, 6.30. Big Hood, what time does it start? I think Big Hood. What time? What's the um, the uh, I think it's the house uh, still Six. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you caught me off guard with that one, bro. Oh yeah, my bad. I because I, so. I thought we talked about about six, but um, we did. Yeah. So, um, and you told me so, uh, but yeah, man, you have to come. When I when I'm busy, I ain't been busy the whole month. But you decide to come <laughs> that weekend. We <laughs> well, we gonna right. we, we uh, talk about that, bitch. huh? Yes, that, that, hey, you. Well, I will be coming back. They're already uh, booking me coming back up that way anyway. Oh man, well that's that's what it is. But I, I can't miss you again, and uh, I, well, I'll, actually, I'll make sure I. I'm gonna make sure I'm on that one with Al, so I'll be with Al on that one. <laughs> Believe that one. That's what yeah. I'm talking about. That's right. Yeah. If, I just want and, all and I Al. want. Hood, Hood, and EP. All I want, y'all. When I get the yeah, I just want a crab cake sandwich. <laughs> I want walk up from from Nutbush. I'll walk over <laughs> from Nutbush. <laughs> yeah, it is gonna be a good time, man. I mean, we take you around, Al, and, uh, you know, just me being seen, which is already going to make me look bigger than life. So, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, you can't come take all my women, though. I'm, hey, I'm not going to come take, I'm not going to take one. 
No, I, got, I got one. I, my, mine's going to be waiting on me at home when I come back to the crib. Oh, okay. oh yes, indeed. Boy, so I come, be, I I I'm coming. It's going to be a different story. <laughs> <laughs> you can't come. DJ showing an itch for a scratch. All right, who's itching for a scratch? I got my turntable. <laughs> I got, this, I got this needle that you don't have to put a penny or a quarter on it. Show us your titties. Hell yeah. Uh, DJ, be good. Were you DJing this weekend, big brother? Where you at? Yeah, um, I'm at the uh, Triple Effects Thursday night. That's the Newport News. I'm at the American Legion Friday night. That's in uh, Hampton. I'm at the Flying Twenty Saturday night. That's also in Hampton. And then Saturday night, the feel, excuse me, Sunday, the Feel Good Crew is having our back to school uh, tailgate party where we get supplies oh. and um, donations for the children to go back to school. That's okay. gonna be at Buffalo Park in Hampton. That's an all day event, free to the public. And um, how, how many how many average kids y'all get every year? Uh, hood, you know, what's um, the average? Probably about three, four hundred. Because oh, we wow. like after this event, we have another event where we actually, you know, we actually dis- distribute the supplies that we didn't bought. I am received, and uh, it'd be we'd be out there for hours. We usually do that at the North Fevers Community Center in Hampton. Yep. All right. I think this is the first time I've been in there. Yeah, I was surprised. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow, Mister No Weapon, you uh, anywhere this weekend? Memorial Day weekend? Uh, yeah, Saturday night, uh, Labor Day weekend, I'll be in my own city, uh, Jonesburg, Louisiana. Okay. Performing thick thighs, say lies, and all the mother hits you got. Absolutely. All right. How's your song doing, uh, Mr. No Weapon? Uh, well, I, I mean, TikTok, they, they, they going crazy with it. Uh, yeah, them white girls are going yeah. crazy with it. That's what you mean on TikTok, right? I Wow, that's good. Yeah, y'all make sure y'all go follow uh, Mister No Weapon on TikTok, man. He be on them. He be oh, yeah. on them women, boy. He be on them. Boy. <laughs> he know, boy, don't he know. He know. He know. Man, he know I'm out there in the water. He don't even give a life preserver to her. <laughs> you got to swim in the You can't swim. I, I, all you got to learn I, how to donkey paddle. <laughs> you going to learn to change. <laughs> yeah, he... No weapon plays no games with him, bro. I... I love watching him on TikTok, especially on his Jesus. live. He Yo, played no Jesus games. Name. Jesus' name. Jesus' <laughs> <laughs> name. Yeah, I see you. I see you graduated to the chat cups instead of the big cups. You down to the small cups now. 
Oh, you saw that? <laughs> yeah, I saw some of this boy crazy as hell. <laughs> oh, man, well, um, on behalf of DJ Sean and the dysfunctional family, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Tomorrow night we got another great from the industry, Mr. Mr. Herman Hitson. Um, he taught, I'm going to say it, pretty much taught uh, the sound that you heard here, um, Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix, and Jimmy Hendrix style. Jimmy Hendrix got that style from Mr. Herman, from Mr. Herman Hitson. Um, he's going to be on with us tomorrow. He's 80. He's in his 80s and, and uh, just just released his, his, his latest CD as well. Um, he's going to be on with us tomorrow tomorrow night right here on the Hilltop Radio Show. Another another legend with, you know, uh, a lot, a lot of history, you know, under his system, you know, brought here on the show. So, uh, and then Wednesday night, we're going to have uh, part two of EP's Playhouse from, sat- from Saturday on... Um, on uh, Wednesday night, and then Thursday on uh, uh, Double Chocolate Show, I was able to land her, Marcellus the singer. He has a new hit song, Toxic Glove. He's going to be on. He's going to be on with us yeah. Thursday night. Yeah. That sounds nice too. Yeah, <laughs> real nice. So, you guys, go ahead and get your rest. Be blessed. Uh, and uh, I'll be talking to y'all. Y'all have a good night, man. Good night, everybody. Uh-huh. Good night. Message. All right. <laughs>